And as the band is leaving, uh, I have the privilege of introducing our main speaker for the week. Uh, Cyril Chavis is from, uh, well, he lives in Jackson, Mississippi right now with his wife, Janelle, and his two daughters, Aria and Elise. Elise is itty-bitty. She's like two months old, two months, right? I met her earlier. She's giving me baby fever. She's pretty cute. Uh, but they will be around this week, and um, I'm sure they would love to meet you guys. But Cyril is originally from Virginia Beach and graduated from the University of Virginia and went on to uh, study and get his MDiv at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He then went on to be the RUF pastor at Jackson State University, and he is now in the process of transitioning and is about to move to Washington, D.C. to be the RUF pastor at Howard University. And uh, I've personally never heard Cyril uh, preach, but I was talking to a pastor friend of mine about all the RYM speakers that we have lined up uh, for the summer. We, it, it's a killer lineup, by the way. We've had some amazing speakers and even more to come. But I was telling him about the lineup and all the names, and the first thing that this pastor said was, you got Cyril to come? So I'm super excited and pumped that we have Cyril here uh, preaching to us. And uh, I can't wait for you guys to get to hear uh, the preaching of the word as well. So without further ado, please give it up for Cyril Chavis. <laughs> Testing, testing. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. All right. Oh, whoa. Okay, cool. Appreciate you, bro. All right. Oh, whoa. I'm like, I can, there's like the bright shining lights and I can see all your faces. This is pretty intimate. This is, this is great. I don't, I don't think I've been in this kind of like setting with preaching where I can like really feel like I see all y'all's faces really clearly. I oh, know this is good. This is fine. This is actually out. I'm seeing if it does move. Thank you. I appreciate it. I was just, I, I just, I'm just testing my, my situation out. I'm seeing if it does move, but it's fine. It's like teeter, do y'all see a teeter-tottering? All right, just bear with me. I'm going to slowly make sure. But uh, like, I, like uh, Joe said, I'm Cyril Chavis. I am from Virginia Beach originally. I went to UVA, Wahoo Wah. Currently, I heard a couple UVA people in, in the house, right? Uh, that, that, that feels good. I, I'm currently in Jackson, Mississippi, um, and so I don't meet a lot of UVA people. Uh, and so I'm actually going up to D.C. to, oh, ooh, there we go. Appreciate it. Yes. I'm ready to preach now. Let's go. Oh, man, if you have one. <laughs> All right. Hey, I'm about to get a pool pit, y'all. Okay. <laughs> um, man, and it's a joy to be here. Uh, I'm super excited to be with you guys this week. So, um, man, I'm excited to see y'all at the beach. Uh, I come here every year for RUF Summer Conference. And, like, I forget that I'm a campus minister. I'm just, like, having fun just like this dude around, just like a high school. I'm like, oh, I've been, like, out on the beach and been doing all this. So if you all see me just running around just like a high schooler, just like, you know, just, just, just know what's going on. I'm just having fun. Uh, so if, if I, if I want to just, you know, jump in the pool with y'all, you know, I, I hope I'm not the weird uh, preacher guy. Y'all y'all uh, can, you know, play volleyball and do stuff with me too. Uh, all right. Well, th- uh, the theme for this week is peace with God. Peace with God. So pretty much the big idea for this week is that we were at one time enemies with God, and now we are friends. Isn't that powerful? We were at one, if you if you are God, and now we are friends with Him through Jesus. And if you if you are uh, still investigating Jesus, or maybe you have rejected Jesus, or whatever. 
Jesus is the key to this peace with God. And even if you have Jesus, you've heard about Jesus your whole life, I want us to renew our, our confidence that Jesus grants us peace with God. 27, uh, so turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27, it should be up on the screen. Um, but we're going to talk about how Jesus grants us peace with God. So I kind of have like a whole lineup of uh, talks on peace with God. So I want you to think of peace with God as like concentric circles. Do you, do you all know what concentric circles are? Right. I'm not even sure if I do. So it's basically like a bunch of circles that have the same center and they're just going outward, right? So if like, if you, I'm a very visual person. So if you have an image of like those circles, the vertical, like the center is God, right? So the vertical relationship, y'all with me? The first thing is we have to have peace vertically with God. And then once we have peace with God vertically, this peace goes further and further outward. So once we have peace with God, we have peace with each other within the body of Christ. And then we reach out and we preach peace to those who are near and those who are far off, basically meaning we send this message of peace outward. And then we want to, are y'all with me? The people of God from people who would seek to disrupt this peace. Are y'all with me? So peace with God, peace with each other, how to bring other people into the fold to have this peace, and how do we maintain this peace. Um, so today I want to talk about peace with God. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, where we're, that we have a notorious. So tonight I want to reflect on the fact that we have a notorious Savior for a notorious people. We have a notorious Savior for a notorious people. So, um, actually, let me flip to Matthew 27, and then I'll read this Matthew. I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Hear now the reading of God's word. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he said to him, and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Let's try that one more time. Somebody notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Somebody say notorious. Let's try that one more time. Somebody say notorious. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Because he knew that it was out of his wife's that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more. Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, 
I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having violently whipped Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you that we can spend a week diving deep into the reality that we have peace with you. And that this peace goes deep into our own hearts and goes far out horizontally into peace with one another, into peace with those who do not have peace yet. Lord, and would you show us how to protect and preserve this peace? So, Lord, I pray that you would really, really, really help me throughout this week. Lord, would you give me preaching power? Lord, would you help my vocal cords? Would you remind me that I have to preach all week? Would you help me not scream throughout this week? Lord, I pray that I would um, really be earnest. And would you strike within me a love and, and, and a care for these students? And, Lord, I pray that you would bless my students, that you would open up their hearts, Lord, that they would receive your word, that they would love your word, they would believe your word. Lord, I ask that they would treasure it. That wouldn't just be something that they take it for granted that you're, oh, we just do this because we're here at RYM. No, that they would t- not take it for granted that your word is being explained and expounded upon. And Lord, would they not only be hearers, but would they be good doers? So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, be with us, bless us. Lord, we love you. Amen. So Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and you have Juliet. How many popular romantic tragedies in the English-speaking world? So you have Romeo and you have Juliet. How many of y'all familiar with Romeo and Juliet? By the way, I'm super informal. Like, y'all can speak back to me. How many of y'all have read Romeo and Juliet? Just in high school? Uh, yeah, okay, good. So, so you know the story. Romeo and Juliet were a part of opposing families, the Montague and Capulet family. Their rival families. The play opens with a scene where they're fighting, and then the, the, the kind of the prince of the town says, stop, we're going to have peace. So there's a tense peace. Both sides of the family are supposed to keep the peace, and whoever breaks the peace will be put to death. So you have, uh, so the scene kind of flips to Romeo, and he's kind of like, you know, he's lovesick. Uh, he, he, he's a Montague, and he has a crush on this girl named Rosalind. So he's like, man, I'm going to sneak into the Capulet party, and I'm going to, you know, I don't know, how, try and get her digits or something. I don't know. And uh, so, so he goes on there, and he's trying to holler at Rosaline, but he messes around and gets a crush on Juliet. So then he's, like, talking to his, his boys, and he's like, man, I wonder if she has a crush on me. And then he finds out later that she does have a crush on him. He's like, bet, I have a crush on her, too. So basically they get Friar Lawrence to arrange a secret marriage, um, and they get married. So they're secretly married. Are y'all still with me? But now, guess what happens? No one knows that Juliet is married, so now they're trying to arrange for her to get married to this dude named Paris. And this is a no-no because she's married, right? So Friar Lawrence and Juliet come with this intricate plan. They're like, all right, you're going to get to Paris. Where you're going to be like kind of fake dead for two days. Boom, you're dead, so you can't get married to Paris. We're winning. And then Romeo is going to get a text message that he needs to meet you at your grave, and you're going to go off and live happily ever after. But guess what happened? Romeo had bad service. He didn't get the text message. He didn't get the memo. So he, he hears about Juliet dying. He's like, the crib, I can't live without Juliet. And so he goes and he grabs a, 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 po- a poison, and he's going to the crypt, and he's about to drink this poison. And then he gets there, and he sees Paris mourning, and then him and Paris fight to the death. And then he's like, I can't live without you, Juliet. And then he takes the poison, and he dies. And then guess what happens right after that? Juliet wakes up. She's like, oh, my God, Romeo, I can't live without you. And, she do. and so she takes the dagger, and then she, this is kind of violent. She kills herself, and then she dies. And then 
you know, basically the whole point is that, man, like the two families kind of come around these depths. But this sermon isn't about Romeo and Juliet, kind of as fun as it is to explain the, the, the whole deal. So this, Romeo and Juliet has something to do with our text. There's something at work here. It's called tragic is when, I'm, I'm high school English, tragic irony. So tragic irony is when, I'm, I'm, see, y'all are fresh on it. I had it in high school English. I might get it wrong. Tragic irony is when the audience knows something that the characters do not. Am I right? <laughs> no. <laughs> When the, yes, I see some head nods. When the audience knows people in, so that the characters do not. So tragic irony is used as, as a device to draw people in. So basically, like, when we see Romeo walking to the crypt, what are we trying to yell at him? What do we, what do we want to happen? Where we want to yell, stop, Romeo, stop. Like, she's not really dead, right? And so there's an emotional response created because we know. And we're, are y'all with me? And then when Juliet wakes up, and then she takes the dagger, and we're, and we're like, oh, like, what do we want to say? We're like, oh, dang it, like, <laughs> you know, because it's all over a misunderstanding, this tragic irony. The audience, us, knows something that Romeo and Juliet do not know, and is meant to draw us in, is meant to make us cry, to laugh, to be sad, to be happy. Now, um, I know this is a high school group. Uh, have you all seen the movie Get Out? I know that's kind of like an adult movie. Don't, don't watch it if you're not 17 or if your parents don't let you. But basically, it's, it's a popular kind of um, portrayal of tragic irony. Basically, so Get Out is basically about this guy. He's in an interracial relationship. There's, there's kind of like a white family, and there's a black guy dating a white girl. But basically, like, the whole, point, the whole thing of the movie is all a trap. They, she brings him home to her family, and they have, like, this whole intricate setup where they put basically white souls in black bodies. I know it's a weird movie. But basically what happens is, like, he's there and he's thinking that he's there, you know, to meet the family and that he's in love with this girl, but she's really luring him in. And, like, they had a hard time. All the people who are about to auction off his body come and they visit. And then he's like, man, he's talking to his girlfriend. He's like, man, that was, they're sitting by the lake. He's like, that was really weird. She's like, yeah, babe, that was weird. I hope you're comfortable. And he's like, yeah, I'm comfortable. And they're like, oh, they have this, this moment where they're like, oh, I love you too. But while they're having this moment sitting by the lake talking about how they love each other and stuff like that, guess what's happening? They are auctioning off his body across the yard, and he doesn't even know it. So the reason why the movie is called Get Out, because you want to scream at the screen, Get Out, <laughs> right? Right, they're about to possess your body, right? This is like a modern-day example of tragic irony. So why do I explain know something? Because I think this is what's going on in our text. You see, we know something that the people here do not know, right? We see Jesus on trial. We see the most righteous man who ever lived being put on trial. And we're supposed to have a response to it. Have you, have you all ever heard about Jesus' death and actually had an emotional response to it? Have you all felt how weighty this passage is? Like if, if we read this and we just walk away not being moved, there's something wrong. Matthew is showing us irony to draw us in. So I want to look at three tragic ironies about this passage. Are y'all still with me? Walk away. I want to look at three tragic ironies. Uh, like I said, the main thing I want us to walk away with, if, if you don't get all the tragic irony stuff, this is the main thing. We have a notorious Savior for a notorious people. We have a notorious Savior for a notorious people. So I want to look at three tragic ironies. The notorious Savior, the notorious people, 
and the notorious exchange. So first, a notorious savior. So somebody say a notorious savior. All right, so we see in verses 11 through 19 um, that basically Jesus is on trial. It means they are well-known or famous. I mean, that's kind of a big word. Uh, so when you call someone notorious, it means they are well-known or famous for a bad quality. Basically, they're famous for a bad quality. Now, during his time, Jesus was a notorious person. He was not popular. But do you know why he was notorious? Uh, and mainly he was notorious to the religious elite. His teaching shook the authority of the religious elite. He did things that went against the traditions of the religious elite, like healing on the Sabbath. He rebuked their authority, uh, and he uh, rebuked their hypocrisy. He condemned their empty religion. He, the, uh, the religious elite were also scared because Jesus uh, would compromise their kind of popular in every way. The Romans, he was more gifted in every area. And he was more popular in every way. So the religious elite hated Jesus. So you know what they tried to do? They said, we need to kill this dude. So basically, they get a mob, and they capture Jesus, and they put him on trial in front of Jewish courts. So they're trying to get a God. Boom, we're going to hit really trying hard to get this innocent man put to death. And then they're like, man, this guy said he's the son of God. Boom, we're going to hit him with blasphemy. Blasphemy, it was, it was punishable by death. But guess what? So the Jews, they were under Roman dominion, and because of that, they weren't allowed to exercise capital punishment. Are y'all still with me? So in order for them to kill Jesus, they had to condemn him in their courts, and then they had to get him put to death in the Roman courts. So then they sent him to Pilate. And so now they're, they're saying, hey, didn't Jesus say he's the king of the Jews? And to see back then saying that you were uh, a higher authority than Caesar, that was punishable by death. So they're saying Jesus is the king of the Jews. Isn't Caesar the only king? So now we see Jesus. Are you the king under trial for his life? So Pilate is asking him, so Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus kind of puts the ball back in his court. He says, you have said so. If he says, I am the king of the Jews, then they would misconstrue it, and they would put him, put him to death with the wrong reason. If he said, no, I'm not the king of the Jews, he'd be lying because he actually is the king of the Jews. And so basically having a conversation with Pilate, and at the same time, Guess what's happening? Jesus is just having a conversation with Pilate, and all the crowd is throwing all types of accusations against him. They're saying, this dude is grimy. He deserves death. We hate him. He's challenging all our uh, rules and customs. And Pilate, the text says that Pilate was greatly amazed. Do you know what that means when it says Pilate was greatly amazed? That means he was blown away. Like, he was literally, like, he, he was um, like the, the, the most amazed you've ever been in your life, that's what's going on in Pilate's life right now. You know why? I imagine that Pilate has put a lot of people to death. He's seen a lot of criminals. He's seen a lot of people come through. But if someone was trying to put a false charge on me, you know what I'd be doing? I promise I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Please let me free. Please let me go. Like, they're all lying, right? But guess what Jesus is doing? Silent. Jesus is not saying a word. And so at this point, Pilate is like, okay, might even be. Pilate's like, there's something weird going on. This guy's not normal. He might even be more than human, just maybe. At the very least, Pilate is thinking this guy is righteous. So we see here that Jesus, that uh, Pilate realizes that Jesus was notorious for his righteousness. But also that on top of that, speeds over. Guess what happens? Pilate's wife comes to him. 
And it's like, so basically she drives, she speeds over in the car, jumps out, goes to him while he's in the middle of a court case and like whispers to him in his ear. Like, I imagine it's like, hey, stop. I had a dream about this guy. Like, he's right. Don't have any. Like, if, if I was a judge and my wife busted in the courtroom and came over to me and whispered, like, stop. I had a dream about this. dude," I'm like, boom, boom. I'm like over with. He's free. I'm done. Like, this is too weird. <laughs> right. <laughs> so she run. And so at this point, Pilate is like. There's something weird going on here. Pilate is like, there is something righteous and something different about this guy. You see, the tragic irony here is that the Jews think he's a notorious person, yet we know that he's the only perfectly righteous person who's ever lived. Y'all catch that? We, the audience, knows that he is the only perfectly righteous person who has ever lived. And the people in Matthew's narrative are trying to condemn him up guilty charge on him. We're supposed to scream at this story. We're supposed to be like, wake up. Everybody wake up. He is not notorious. He is righteous. You're making a mistake. We're supposed to feel the injustice. Have y'all heard of the word injustice? I can't think of any more injustice than what's going on right here in our text. They have put God on trial because they missed God's beauty. You see, Jesus, the embodiment of God, the most perfect, beautiful, righteous person who ever lived, God himself, the image of the eternal God, he came to earth to love people. And guess where he ended up? On trial. These people were waiting for him. He ends, can't wait for the Savior to come. We're looking forward to him. He's going to free us. And then when he finally came, he ends up being in a crowd and they're all yelling for him to be put to death. But y'all, unless we think that we're any different from them, doesn't this kind of sometimes happen in our lives and in our families and in our culture? Jesus, see God uh, and hear about God and hear about Jesus, but then we're really not sure if he's good. We're really not sure if he's righteous, that stuff is going on in our lives. And we're like, man, Jesus, what are you up to? God, what are you up to? And then we get bitter, and then we, and then we get to a place where we don't trust God, and then we get to a place where we put God in the judgment seat. And we're like, God, I don't trust you. God, if you would just get out of my life and leave me alone, things would be perfect. Have any of us been there? Yet in the midst of our nation, our, our, our family, our, in, in places in our individual lives where we put God on trial, we have to remind ourselves that he is not the one who is on trial. We are the ones who are on trial because he is the judge. And he is perfectly righteous, perfectly good, perfectly loving. Even when we don't realize it, God will always be God. But the second thing is we see a notorious people. Somebody say a notorious people. So we see in verses 20 through 23 that I really think what's going on here. So until I really started digging deep into this text, I thought Pilate was just this nonchalant guy who was just like, whatever, I'm just trying to do my job. But I really think that Pilate is trying to save Jesus. I think what Pilate does, uh, like, I'm feeling, you know what, okay, usually I, like, this guy right here is weird. My wife came to my job. Like, I'm feeling kind of weird because he's not defending himself. Let me see if I could get him released. So he picks the most notorious, like, he actually picks a notorious famously bad person. He says, I'm going to put Jesus 
and Barabbas, the notorious person, up, and they are for sure going to pick uh, Jesus to be releasing because Barabbas, because Barabbas is ratchet. He's, he's notorious for real, for real, right? So he's like, hey, guys, who do you want released to you? Jesus or Barabbas. And, they're, and, they're, and he's like hoping they'll say, Gee, yeah, bring us Jesus. But they're like, release Barabbas. The hook. Um, <laughs> right? He's trying to get Jesus off the hook. Um, see, well, the crazy thing is the Jews, uh, the, the Jewish elite wanted a murderer. So Barabbas was, he, he was a murderer. He was a rebel. And he, he, he was actually like stealing stuff. He, he, he was just like a very kind of well-known, grimy, uh, violent person. And the Jews wanted a murderer released to them to hang with them. And they wanted Jesus, the giver of life, to be sent to death. Y'all, there's so much tragic irony right here. You see, the Jews in Pilate here are condemning Jesus to death, yet they don't know that they are condemning the judge of the world. They have the judge of the world on the judgment seat. We see it, but they don't. And you see, not only that, they are charging Jesus with rebellion against Caesar, yet they don't know that in doing so, they're rebelling against the king of kings and lord of lords. Y'all catch that? They're saying Jesus is rebelling against the king, and yet they don't know he's the king of kings. They think that they are doing a service to God in killing Jesus, but they don't know that they are killing God himself. There is so much tragic irony in this passage, and we're supposed to be screaming out, stop, stop, he is the judge, he is king, he is God, and you all want to put him to death. We're supposed to feel like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the earth. How can you put God to death? God has come to save us, and he has ended up under the guillotine. But family, unless we look at the Jews and say, oh, man, like, I wouldn't have done that. I would have, I would have been down with Jesus. Like, I would have been there with him. Like, we should just pause. That can't we be sometimes like the people in this passage? You see, family, Every time we sin, we are temporarily exchanging Jesus for Barabbas. Every time we sin, we are temporarily exchanging Jesus for Barabbas. We exchange lasting joy for fleeting pleasures. We exchange godly authority for our own decisions. We exchange love for hate. We exchange forgiveness for anger, speaking life for cursing, and contentment for stealing. And the list goes on and on and on. If we're honest, if we're truly honest, Barabbas sounds like way better company than Jesus sometimes. I don't know. Am, am I the only person who's honest? That what, what would it be like if Jesus sat next to you in class? Or what would it be like if Jesus, you know, was a, um, got adopted into your family? Say Jesus was a teenager. Like, wouldn't that be a little uncomfortable? But man, I got the most righteous, the only righteous person who ever lived, like, in, in my stuff, Right? Wouldn't sometimes Barabbas be better company? Like, he, he's a gangster, and, like, you know, we think that's cool. Like, we watch gangster movies, and, you know, he kills people, and we're like, okay, like, he's, he's pretty grimy. Like, there's nothing that I can do that could be worse than him. I feel pretty comfortable. That if we're honest, sometimes Jesus, and our, we, we just want to hold him at an arm's length. That if we're honest, we know we have sinned. We know we are uh, messed up. We know we have shame, that we feel bad about the things we've done and about bad about the 
way we are, and we really want Jesus to be held at our arm's length so we don't feel guilty and we don't feel ashamed. And we must realize the ways that we have not submitted our lives to Jesus. But lastly, and I'm out your way, we have a third tragic irony. We see a notorious notorious exchange. Somebody say notorious exchange. So, y'all, this sermon is about, like, bad news, and it hadn't been pretty, pretty deep. Like, we've heard about, like, people wanting to put God to death. We've heard about our sin. We've heard about exchanging Jesus for Barabbas. We've heard about putting God on trial, but there is good news in this passage. So we have seen so far that apart from Jesus, we are like the Jewish elite and we are like Pilate. We do not have peace with God. And check it out. Here's a picture of not having peace with God. Check this out. So Pilate, he feels the pressure because it's his job to be the governor. So guess what Pilate does? He sees a riot is about to start. He's trying to get Jesus off the hook, and they're, they're, they're about to go bananas. So Jesus, uh, for, so Pilate is like, all right, y- y'all put this dude to death. It's not on me. And so he washes his hands with water. But he doesn't know that no matter how much he washes his hands with that water, he is doing one of the most horrendous things in the history of the world. He is scared for his job, and because of his job, he's sending God to death. And you know what the Jews say in response? They say, his blood be on us and on our children. They say, you know what, Pilate? Don't even worry about it, bro. Don't even worry about your conscience. This will be on ours. We'll take this one. He says, not only are we so confident we're doing this for God, our, our children will be held responsible for this. We want this to be accounted to our children's account. And they don't know that they, they don't know what they're saying. This is one of the most horrible things that has ever been uttered in the history of the universe. But now... This is what it looks like to not be at peace with God. Are y'all still with me? This is what it looks like to not be at peace with God. And this is where, apart from Christ, we all are. But here's, here's a tragic irony. Here's a tragic irony in this part of the passage. You see, Pilate washes his hands with water and sends Jesus to the death, yet he didn't know that he would actually have to send Jesus to the death in order to actually be cleansed, really cleansed from what he just did. And by sending Jesus to the death, he wasn't only opening up the opportunity for him to be cleansed, but for the nations to be cleansed. You see, we know how monumental this moment is, but he doesn't know it yet. And the Jewish elite said, his blood be on us and on our children. But you know what we know? that Jesus' cleansing blood would actually have to be on them and on their children in order for them to have any hope of being enemies turned into friends. Matthew is showing us how beautiful the gospel is. See, here Jesus, like, I, I want you to, feel, to imagine this real quick and feel this. Imagine, so Barabbas is really what it's like to become friends with God. Imagine you're Barabbas, right? Just, like, if it helps, just close your eyes, like, Imagine you're Barabbas. I don't know where Barabbas is. He, he has ch- maybe chains on him. He might be in a jail cell somewhere. He might actually be standing there with Jesus. But Barabbas knows he's a grimy dude. He knows there is nothing in the world that is about to save him from being put to death. He is 100% certain that he's about to hang on that cross. He's probably thinking over his life. He's like, man, I've murdered people. I've you know, uh, fought people. I've caused riots. I've stolen things. And then imagine someone coming up to him and is saying, unlocks his chains and says, you're free. 
you're good to go. Like, imagine how, like, I would, you mean, I, wait, 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 hold up. Put the chains back on. What's going on right now? Like, this is too good to be true. You mean I'm really free? Like, my record is wiped clean? And they'd be like, yes, somebody died in your place. Who was it? That one rabbi named Jesus. And as you see your chains fall to the ground, you see Jesus a bloody mess because he's been violently whipped. Scourged, when people were scourged, it was basically whips with pieces of metal on them. Can y'all imagine that? So Jesus was probably pretty, I don't know, I, I can't say, but he, I would be pretty close to death if somebody whipped me with whips with metal pieces on them before I even hung on a cross. You see a bloody Jesus walking to the cross as you're being set free. You see, what's happening here is a notorious exchange. When Jesus went to the cross, he exchanged his righteousness for your guilt. Y'all got that? He exchanged his righteousness for your guilt. So when he goes from, to the cross, he is taking your sins on his back, and he is carrying him, them, them there. And when the wrath of God is poured out on him, when he dies a horrendous death, when God forsakes him on the cross, he does it in your place. So that you who have held God at arm's length, who didn't really want anything to do with Jesus, if you place your trust in Jesus, you are completely a thousand, a hundred percent forgiven. Not halfway forgiven, full as the heavens are above. As far as the east is from the west, so far have your transgressions been removed from you. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so fast, so great is God's steadfast love for you. But not only this, you are given Jesus' righteousness. So every innocent, righteous thing he did, he deserved blessing and reward for them. Blessings. You get the united to Jesus in faith. If you have placed your trust in him, you get all of Jesus' blessings. You get the love of the Father. You get adoption as sons and daughters. You get the sanctification. You have the promise that you will be transformed. And you have the promise that you will live for God in a perfect place forever and 100% totally blessed with him forever because of what Jesus has done for you. And you know why I call it a notorious exchange? Because this kind of forgiveness is notorious, isn't it? In our world today, this totally radical forgiveness, it kind of offends people, doesn't it? Like whenever I share the gospel with non-believers or non-Christians, uh, a lot of times one of the objections is like, man, hold up, hold up, hold up. So you're telling me that I could live the worst life ever. I could be on my deathbed. And if I say, I believe in Jesus, I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven. I'm just like, Yeah. Like, man, I can't believe that. No, 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 no. That's not how it should work. Like, that's kind of grace. The fact that Jesus, the worst, the most far gone, the most unlikely people, that he, while he was hanging on the cross, he said, I love that person. And I'm going to die for their sins because I am going to blow my spirit on them. And they're going to trust in me, rely on me, cast all their hopes on me. And they will be with me. This type of grace is radical. It's notorious, y'all. And if we live out this grace and believe this grace, if we believe that we have peace with God, not because anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done, we will live notorious lives. That we will be gracious when everyone else is judgmental. We will be merciful when everyone else wants an extra pound of flesh. We will be loving to people who are enemies when other people only love those who love them back. We will be people who love others and extend peace to others. And we'll talk about this all throughout the, the, the rest of our time together. But the most important thing is I want you to know that peace with God is available to you through Jesus Christ. So if this is your first time hearing the gospel, 
I want to invite you. So faith in Jesus basically means trusting in him. Faith in Jesus means I trust that he has died for my sins and he rose again to be my king and to lead me. And I trust that I am loved and righteous before the Father because of what Jesus has done for me. And those of you who have uh, placed your trust in Jesus have heard this gospel. I want you to recognize what a beautiful, beautiful gift it is to have peace with God. Like, have you all ever thought about this? I think about this every once in a while and I kind of get goosebumps. The God of the universe who created everything, like the atoms in your seat, he created those a long time ago. And this God is cool with you. Have you ever thought about that? Like, if you really feel that God is, like, if you really sense the fact that God is real, you're like, I wonder if he's cool with me. Like, that's the next thing that occurs. If you know someone's that powerful and that big, you're like, I hope he's cool with me, right? (laughs) And in Christ, he's cool with you. He loves you. Not only does he love you, he likes you because you're his friend. And he's done that through Jesus. So we have a notorious Savior for notorious people. And this is all done by a notorious exchange. Let me pray for us. The fact that you are gracious, Tom, Lord, we thank you for this night. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us with the fact that you are gracious, you are loving, you are righteous, you are good. And Lord, no matter how many times we put you on trial, you will still remain so. And Lord, we just want to confess to you the ways that we have been sinful, the ways that we have not, that we have not worshipped you as God, the ways that if we're honest, that Barabbas is way better company than Jesus in our heart of hearts. So, Lord, we want to confess that, and would you please forgive us? And, God, we thank you for the notorious exchange, the grace that you have extended to us, that you have made enemies friends, and you have treated your son as an enemy in order for this to happen so that we might become friends. So, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.